This week on the Writer Dojo, another episode that was recorded live in Jack Wilder's Fencon Hotel Room. Sorry about the audio. Enjoy! Welcome to the Writer Dojo with your host, Steve Diamond, Buenos Dias, and Larry Correa. Deep in the heart of Texas. Today's episode, World Building with Charles E. Gantt. Welcome back, everybody, to the Writer Dojo. We are pleased to have you with us. And as you can tell from the title, we've got another special guest with us today. And that man is Charles E. Gannon. But we're never going to refer to him that way again because that's really long. And we're both really tired. All three of us are tired. So from now on, it's just Chuck. Chuck, we're pleased to have you with us. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to, to, to spend some time with us. The pleasure is all mine, and and I look out the window and I realize we're taking we're taking time out of all of our nights because it is that late here at FenCon in uh, in Dallas, Texas. Um, and thanks for having me here. The honor and the pleasure is all mine. And I have spent a lot of time trying to help writers. I remind people who don't know it that in fact ours is the genre which which actually coined the phrase "pay it forward." And I think uh, we're doing our best when that's what we're doing. Yeah, and uh, Chuck is here at FinCon as the Toastmaster and has had a long day, so we're not going to keep him too long, and we're going to give a chance uh, to, to, to share his information with you. I've known Chuck for many years. The guy is a fountain of knowledge. Uh, he has a very diverse background as far as science fiction and fantasy authors go, and he's got a really big portfolio, and he's got uh, some really cool knowledge to share with us tonight that's kind of distinct. Because he has done some stuff that a lot of writers have not had the opportunity to really get into. And I and I think where we want to start, though, is there's I'm sure that there's some of our readers who, unfortunately, Chuck, have not yet read you. And, and there's a way that they can remedy this. They can go buy your books and they can read them. But the best way for them to get you to get to know you is for you to just kind of introduce yourself. Tell them a little bit about yourself. And uh, and I guess. Let's start with uh, with where you want them to start reading. So I would recommend uh, if you're if you're hard science fiction fans or science fiction fans at all, I would recommend Fire with Fire, which is the first book in the Kane Riordan series. You'll be hearing a little bit more about that later on, not because I'm I'm so enamored of it, although I am, but because it's it's going to be an example of some of the world building from a practical standpoint. By which I mean not just how do you make good fiction, but how do you how do you maximize the possibility you're going to make a decent buck at it. Uh, because I believe that's very important. I mean, the best, they're wonder, I'm sure there are a million wonderful books that have been written that no one will ever read because that second consideration of saleability was not part of the equation. So um, so that's the best place to start with me. If you like fantasy, um, uh, the, there's a, a series called Into the Vortex. The first book is This Broken World. Um, and I've written in pretty much every genre, although I don't think I'm going to do uh, anime Hello Kitty. Oh, man. Sorry to disappoint. All right. So let's, let's start talking a little bit about world building. Um, because of your background, and, and we were chatting a little bit before the, before the show, but you've done some teaching. And uh, from, a, from a pretty high level to college students and whatnot. What I'm curious is, when you started teaching world building to some of these college students, what was one of the very first, what, generally, what is it that you start with, with them? 
Well, we we weren't working. I, I permitted genre, as a matter of fact, I encouraged genre fiction teaching to college students, but it was wide open. So the world building I was doing there was the basic kind that you would you would do in any story, which is uh, who's present, why are they there, what are their motivations, what are the stakes, what are the costs they're willing to pay to achieve those, um, which is actually part of the world. And to, and to make those things ring true, they have to be grounded in something. I believe that that if a writer doesn't believe what they're writing, there are very few writers that are the very few readers that aren't sharp enough and shrewd enough to know that I'm I'm just running into wallpaper here. I'm running into theatrical sets, and I can put my my hand right through that BS you're throwing at me. If you believe it, it will be it will be almost subconsciously transferred into how you say things, details you put in. You're not even aware that you're putting in because you're seeing it in your head. You're channeling as much as you're creating. So, um, so, so that aspect of world building, I think, is part and parcel of any scene setting for a, a believable story. When you get to world building in the genre sense of the word, um, which I, I automatically think of um, having to do with something that has serious potential, and we can leave that for later, but I'm just gonna, I'm gonna put that, that particular flag in that part of the sand map here, um, which is uh, when, when we're looking at genre stuff, uh, one of the first things you want to do, and it becomes really important, is if you're going to put in all that work, you need to make sure that, that I'm going to sound terribly, terribly commerce-oriented here, but it's an important question to ask, which is, am I going to see enough return on the work I'm about to put in to build this world? If you do not address that equation, you could find yourself having created something that you love dearly, many people love dearly, and yet it never makes a damn dime. So that's one of the things that you, you actually have to do, which means the first thing you want to do is say, who's my audience? And do I love the topic enough that on the worst days of my life, I still can't wait to get to that world? If you, if you know the audience and you have that sort of enthusiasm about the world that you're telling the stories about, um, it doesn't guarantee success, but I will tell you that it, in my opinion, it's one of the best, it's one of the best insurances against failure. Wrong. We are all about getting paid on the writer dojo. We we are devout capitalists here. Uh, this is this is the least squishy writing podcast. So on that on that note, then um, when so you've done fantasy and you have done science fiction, and so when you set out to do this, what is your what is your like the the, the nuts and bolts of your personal process? I mean, what do you? Uh, I mean. Like, like, like we, Steve and I have had episodes about world building. I have my I have my process. I always describe as the if this then what, you know. And I find like the story elements, and I want this particular story element. Then I have to ask myself if this exists in this world, then what. So that's kind of like my my method. Do you have one for yourself? I have a bunch, and it it's somewhat different based on what sort of world I'm building. Um, but I will, I will uh, a couple of things that are consistent. Um, one, which is that uh, it's not, people will very often try to re relate this. So they ask this question about world building. What comes first? The characters of the world. Yeah. And my answer is yes. Mm -hmm. Because actually what you, yes, it's true that characters are specific to a world, but you may also start with uh, an, uh, an idea. This is the sort of character I want to tell the story about. So the first thing you're essentially doing is finding a place where those two things feel like, notice I say feel, not you know, but you feel like there's a good rendezvous. This world is likely to be a, a likely 
environment in which you would find this character that I want to write about. Once I have that, then I'm actually coming from both ends of the spectrum towards the middle. Because every decision I make about the world is coloring the background of this character uh, in, in, in every particular. I, I will not make a, a long laundry list. If you can imagine it, it may be important. Part of the part of the art of this right now mechanistic sounding process is being able to tell in advance. I probably don't need to know the syntax of that language. That's never actually going to come up. You know, you, you you learn to leave things aside. Doesn't mean you haven't thought about them. Doesn't mean you didn't you didn't run off uh, a long audio file on them. And it's good to keep it in record. You never know what you're going to want. Don't yes. throw it away. But don't waste more time on stuff that you can't see that you're going to use. We've joked about that on the on the show before. Those notes are the stuff that wind up if you turn it into a role playing game setting later. <laughs> That's when that stuff is valuable. Well, absolutely. And and I know this is going to sound like a bit of a digression, and yet it has to do with the different way that films and filmmaking process and even TV sees world building versus novelists. And I'm going to put in with that game designers. Because game designers and novelists have, in my opinion, far more in common than, than, than film. And if anybody could see the sort of like screen size, you know, the three by four aspect ratio that I'm holding up right now, film doesn't care about the stuff outside that. Unless they're going to maybe, they, they had something that wound up on, on a storyboard and they say, oh, we can merge that. Okay. But a game designer is thinking, well, so anybody who's, who's, who's wrapped the game here knows what happens. You design this world, you design a very detailed scenario, you love it, you put it in front of your players, and they do they go in exactly the opposite direction. This is this is this is almost like you know water water boils at 100 degrees centigrade at sea level. It is almost that assured. So so but what it means is that you're thinking about the world really. Hollywood is only thinking about that part through which you're, you're viewing through that sort of very tight lens, that myopic tube, and and but but writers, novel novel writers, and game designers have to think beyond that. So um, so this is why, as you're saying, it's re- really useful. I want to give some tools. Okay, yeah. I want to, and, and right now this is going to sound like product management or product promotion, but I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not getting any kickback. Wish I could because I say this all the time. Uh, for those for those of you who have iPhones, I, I don't know what to tell you because the problem is if Apple doesn't like it, you won't get any equivalent of these things, and I don't know. But I will tell you that the App Store uh, for an Android phone, I'm going to make two recommendations, um, one of which has both a um, a, a, a web presence and uh, as a, like a standard URL, uh, and the other which is a phone app, and it is called Otter.ai. Otter AI, I am famous for essentially railing at voice voice to text recognition. I mean, the things that it, it does with my language is just, it astounds me sometimes. Um, but Otter AI, even if not connected to the internet, has extraordinary ability to recognize what you're saying. And its ability to, and here's, here's the other thing, it keeps a recording on site. So let's say it got it wrong. You go back, you go back to the part of the transcript and you you just press you just press to play and you actually find out what it said. Now I brought this up first because you can, like I said it can be on your phone so it can go anywhere with you. It can be on your computer. You can then export so it starts as a wave, but you can then turn it into text, docx, and export it. Now here's here's the beauty part as they used to say in the eighties, um, which is that um, there's another app. It's called 
Um, that I'm gonna have to actually pull my pull, uh, tape. It's tape a talk, tape a talk, and it's hyphenated. It's actually done by a German guy. Um, the, he developed this. You may have noticed on your phones you can't record past a certain amount of time. Now right. tape a talk. Tape a talk was done by a guy who was a doctoral. He was a doctoral student, and he was in a medical program. And they would sometimes have three-hour lectures. So he needed something that would basically record forever. Here's what that does. So let's say you're having a brainstorm session, as I had not to. I had one this morning, 22 minutes, right? Didn't even didn't even take a breath, virtually. Records in, in dot wave. Well, here's the part of where a, Otter AI and this tape of talk really work together because you can upload, you can you can go to AI, Otter AI, you can pull the wave out of whatever source, wherever you've stored the tape of talk, and it will convert a 22, two hour, five hour note-taking session into very, very usable copy. And then you can go back in, listen to yourself. You can slow it down to any speed, capture anything you want. I can, and the reason I say this is important, because I don't know if, it, if you guys are like me, but when I'm thinking about a world, it's always at the least convenient time. Yeah. You know, and it's like, and I want to be able to run with it, and I do, and I use that stuff usually. It's in a book two, it's in, it's about a book two line, two books down from where I'm working at that moment. Yeah, because it's always like places like um, you're driving, uh, you're on a long car drive. That's where I swear that's where the best ideas come from. And it's not like you could write this stuff down, so that's a great idea. Yeah, and I, that's as a matter of fact, when I was down at, uh, at Fanside, when I drive to a con, Put this thing in. I've written uh, large parts of novels that way. I've written a huge amount for world building. It's particularly good for world building because you can just riff on these ideas, cut them up, paste them how you want, or just leave them. You leave them in the equivalent of electronic drawer. And if one day you need them for RPG or a later novel or something like that, they're there. They're waiting. I'm really curious, Chuck, because while I'm listening to you talk about all of this, you're obviously very excited about it. You love talking about this stuff. Um, and you speak about it very well, and you speak about it very clearly, which I, which I I really like. Because one, I'm very tired, and two, sometimes I'm not that smart, and so I really appreciate. Well, I resemble that last remark. I'll tell you that. <laughs> we had Rob Hampson on last episode, so we felt really dumb because he was talking about brains. Oh man. <laughs> Rob, I, th I think Da Vinci would leave the room depressed after listening to Rob Hampson. <laughs> I'm curious for you. What part of the world building process like really jazzes you up? What gets you the most excited about it? That's a tough question because I feel like, you know, it's, it's the thing with squirrels. You know, it's like shiny, shiny, shiny. And, and that's, that's what every part feels like to me. Uh, as a matter of fact, I would say I'm a much more natural world builder than I am a writer. Now, I love writing and I've written all my life, but writing, let's face it, writing's work. For me, World building never. World building feels like I'm trying to essentially, uh, you know, drink from a uh, not a, not fire hose, but a tsunami, and it's keeping up with it. So I love it all, um, and uh, and we can talk more. We're going to take a break really quick, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation. Uh, and I really want us to kind of touch back on the the idea of. One, uh, one of the things you talked about, Chuck, which was um, uh, novel versus series. And then in, in addition to that, um, I kind of want to hit the nuts and bolts aspect of um, return on investment, more or less, when it comes to world building. Because I think that 
in our previous episodes where we talked about world building. We never really got to that part. And so I'm really excited about this. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And hopefully in the meantime, Chuck won't have uh, world built a new novel series while we're gone. Or maybe, fortunately, he will. I just did enjoy your talk. Oh, jeez. Do you miss the old school science fiction vibe with adventure, aliens, and fun? MCA Hogarth has your back with Earthrise. Resettings has enough to do keeping her rattletrap merchant vessel, the TMS Earthrise, profitable enough to feed herself and her crew. When a mysterious benefactor from her past shows up demanding she rescue a man from slavers, her first reaction is to run for the hills. Unfortunately, she did promise to repay the loan. But she didn't think it would involve tangling with pirates over a space elf prince. Book one of the Her Instruments trilogy is a rollicking adventure set in the expansive, pelted universe and kicks off an epic space opera series where the fate of worlds hangs in the balance. Analog Science Fiction says the thrills are non-stop. The alien cultures and races are well-developed and fascinating, and there's just the right amount of humor to keep the whole thing fizzy. Pick up your copy today. And welcome back to the Writer Dojo. In the time we were gone, it was mere moments for you. But, Chuck Gannon, I think you planned out like 13 different series. Did world building on 17 more. It was wonderful. I, I mean, we probably could have recorded it for you, but, you know, we would only give it to supporters of the show. And you know, Larry, that if uh, for just 99 cents an episode... That's just the entry level to becoming a supporter for the Writer Dojo. And that helps guys like me get out of our murderous, horrible day jobs. Also, guys, if you have seen The Price of Brisket lately, you cannot expect Steve to continue giving you awesome barbecue videos uh, without that. He yeah. just cannot afford it. I can't. It's tragic, uh, really. But enough of tragedy. Let's talk about happy stuff. We've got Chuck Gannon with us. And once again, Chuck, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to come chat Hey, anything for brisket subsidy. That's right. Uh, this is this is why we love you, Chuck. All right. We're talking about world building. And I think the very first thing that I want to hit, which is what I alluded to right before the break, and that's I'm really interested to hear your take on how you plan a book versus how you plan a series in terms of world building or universe building, however you want to put it. Well, I wouldn't say this goes for everybody. I know a lot of people who have to do a huge amount of world building to do a book. My tendency is to, um, uh, if I know it's going to be a single, first of all, me, frankly, I'm actually going to ask if I even want to do it. Hmm. You know, if, if, if this is going to be a one-off, do I really want to do the world building work that I, that's going to get it to the point where I believe? Um, I don't think that's necessarily a bad decision. I, I think if people have an instinct for series, all I can say is that we live in the age of Netflix binging and that binging and the and the indie publishing, the bottom line is the appetite for and the expectation of frequent gratification of something we like is very high. This is, it is structurally, it favors the person who thinks about series. So there's a lot of reasons where at the, the first ROI element is, is a single book worth the time it takes? If it's worthwhile enough as a project, I will then, then the bottom line is I'm actually going to want to probably keep, keep the questions, keep the themes tight because why do I want to build a complex architecture of whatever power groups there are, what motivations there are, technologies, 
I, I, I pretty much don't want to do that. Um, so I'm gonna make a recommendation. So here's a world that I jumped into, which I was perfectly fine doing as single books. One of the reasons for that is this, so this was a, a John Ringo's Black Tide Rising series. Hey John, you out there? Hope you're listening, probably not. But if you are, Black Tide Rising. And, uh, and basically I, uh, I got an opportunity to do those books, two books. They're very short, they were first person. And here's why they were worth it, because the world is largely our world. It's research into things that have essentially decayed. So I could look at that and say, if I don't do but one or two of these, I'm gonna research the places where this travel, this boat goes, and, and I have to know those. But I really don't have to do a lot of the sort of whole cloth building of something set 100 years in the future on an entirely different you know, reality. How much of the previous works in the series did you use as de facto world building for yourself? Very little, and there's, there are a couple of reasons for that. Um, one of them is when you're looking at, and this is something also for uh, David Weber, when I went in and did something for the Honorverse, uh, I actually took a setting which was before humans left Earth, before they had gotten out. The reason for these was I looked for places and, and people that had not been done. That meant that, and one of the things when you're world building in a shared universe is if you can keep from getting yourself entangled in somebody else's plot lines, or being, or putting, or putting stakes in the ground, which are going to tangle other people up. The bottom line is you're saving people time. And in this job, I know this sounds terribly mercantilistic, but time is money. Oh, we're very mercenary. Yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're all about the, you know, maximizing that return on investment. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's actually it's interesting because um, you talk about like you know putting, uh, not tripping over the established universe stuff. And the bigger the universe is, the more likely you are to trip. And me and you have been on the opposite side of the coin where we're the IP holder, we're the guy in charge of the universe, you know, we're the master of the universe, uh, where I've had people come in and write in my universes, and you have done that too. Would you tell us a little about like, uh, uh, your Murphy's Lawless project and what you've done there? So so this is an example, and, and actually it, you may be able to find this in other places as well, where different parts of this process are going to be detailed. Um, but Murphy's Lawless is, so that's connected to that Kane Riordan universe I spoke about first, Fire with Fire. Told you we'd come back to it, here we are. Um, so this started out as five books. It um, I managed to fool enough, enough people enough of the time that it was, it had four Nebula nominations out of the five books. It had two Dragon nominations and won the Compton Crook Award. So, so on the strength of that, we and it's not it's not anything like Larry's audience. Let, let me, you know, my audience is at least a whole order of magnitude lower. On the other hand, I, I, there are really loyal buyers. Um, that doesn't mean that Larry's aren't. It just means that when you can sell an order of magnitude less than Larry, if you maintain audience and their audience engagement, they're so enthusiastic they're reading your book two and three times to get all the pieces. It's a very different model, but it's working. So, so since it worked that well, what happened was um, we, I had spoken to Tony, and there are, there are so many things that could be teased out of this. I mean, Tony Weisskopf from Bain Books, she was the first person I spoke to. And so if you're thinking of, do you have a property that you want to spin off into a, a broader IP, that's kind of the model I'm offering right now, because that's exactly what we did. And it had a, an industry unique outcome. So here's what happened. Uh, first step was to talk to Tony. She's the one I've been publishing with. She always has, she's in the contracts, right of the next book. Okay, fine. I said, look, I think I got more stories than you have slots. Uh, would you be okay if I went and I took this to a very specific indie? I'm not gonna shop this around. I'd already been shopping around, by the way, for four to five years. I'm not gonna embarrass anybody out there 
all, all the sort of indie imprints, some big ones that I took a look at, and I said, nah, I don't think so. But I found CKP, Chris Kennedy Publications. Uh, I, uh, Chris and I got trust. Man, if your instinct is right, that you are met a person and you say, I can already tell this guy will have my back and I'll have his. Let me tell you, all the other things that might not be particularly promising about that, they are not as important as that quality of trust. So ask Tony, she said, go with my blessing, don't let it get in the way of your main production. Absolutely, was not about to let any tail wag any dog here. So then I went to Chris and I said, Chris, I have this idea, it's kind of like if you will imagine it, it's set in the cane verse, which is about 100 years from now, and it's a little bit like, yeah, imagine uh, essentially Band of Brothers meets Kelly's Heroes. And so I was wondering if, and he said, I'm doing it. I, I, didn't, I, I got like two sentences out. And so we were, we were sort of set. But from that point, it took 18 months to get to the point where we had the people, the schedules lined up. We'd had a meeting at, at um, I, I approached us, because I was in TV, I approached us like a showrunner. So I basically said, we had a, we had a brunch at, uh, at Dragon Con, and I said, what do you guys want to do? Because that's the other thing. If there are a lot of different ways to run a shared universe, and you, this is a decision you make. Do you want to be handing out assignments do you want to have it wide open so that so that anybody can do anything, any place, anywhere, and never have any chance of running into each other? Or do you want to, in this case, what I did was I said, I wanted to tap the interests of the individual authors. Because then, even though it's a shared universe, they're personally invested in it. Let me tell you, that is really important when the editing process gets tough to make sure it gets done. The other thing that I did, Murphy's Law is about soldiers. And, and people who've been, who've been stranded on a world 150 years out of their own time is when they're revivified. So I wanted authenticity. And I wanted authenticity from the 20th century. So I got one person, a Navy SEAL, to write in about a Navy SEAL. I got another person who was an armor officer to write about tanks. I got another person who was a helicopter pilot, and she wrote about teaching these aliens about choppers. I had somebody who was essentially wrote about uh, about being a conniver uh, with with trade and and commerce. Uh, I had a police officer who wrote about uh, essentially CID and investigations, and I had a carrier pilot jock write about that and becoming one of their first astronauts. The bottom line was, and this is so this is a strategy, right? And you'll find others. But let's say you're writing a shared universe, and let's say you're saying, what do I do with it? A lot of people will want to write in your shared universe, but uh, you know, and you've got to decide: do you want to make it open submission, or do you want to? Do, if you have a strong vision, go in, make the invites. If it succeeds, then you may have the opportunity to broaden up. But the first thing has to succeed. I'm curious, Larry, when when you did when you started to do like the Monster Hunter files, did you have a lot of the same questions in your head that, that Chuck was going through right there? I did a same same kind of basic process in that you know square peg square hole round peg round hole and certain kind of people are going to, want to tell certain kinds of stories and they would have to come to me and be like this is my pitch this is what I want to touch and it was like what Chuck talked about earlier uh, not tripping over each other's storylines and that kind of thing but it's also it's that good fit and uh, like I know some of the authors that Chuck was talking about there like the uh, like the Mike Massa. Yep. Uh, as Navy SEAL, but phenomenal author. I, one of the things I noticed is all the people you mentioned there, they had that skill set, but they were also very talented. Uh, your helicopter pilot is Casey Zell, right? Of course. Griff Barber is the, Griff uh, Barber is the, is the cop. Yep, exactly. And these are all other authors we know. And uh, so the talent pool that Chuck put together here was not just 
uh, career applicable, knowledge applicable, but also just skilled. They were all skilled writers. And that that and that's another thing. Is here's an ROI. So you're working with a bunch of authors. The best authors to work with are the ones whose work you've already you've already seen before, but not only that, work with the process. So I had a prior anthology set in the universe called Lost Signals. That was, was done as an indie, um, actually through Eric Flint's Ring of Fire Press. And I, in that, it was the first time I worked with, with, um, with Mike. It's the first time I worked with Casey. It's the first time I worked with Griffin. Now, that way I learned what they knew, but I knew something else. How were they to work with? And now you're talking about time management again. Nothing will be as important, in, in my opinion, in your career from a business standpoint as find, watch every decision you make and ask yourself the question of how much of that clock does it cost me? And those, th and, and those folks, I had, and, and I was not at all disappointed. It was, and so that made it, that, that made it just that much easier to do. Yeah, absolutely. Having edited anthologies, if you want to look like a champion rock star editor, the key is just getting good people because then they make your life easy uh, because it's a, once again, like you're so right about that clock. We're on the clock all the time. Yeah. And if I'm wasting time fixing some schlub's broken story in my universe, I am not creating more stuff or helping a better author who I can get a better return on investment. Yeah. And, and, and you know, so, so let's take this out of, let, let's, let's, talk about the elephant in the room that I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be concerned with, which is like, well, that's easy for you to say, Larry and Chuck, but you know, I don't know these people. So what do I do if I'm dealing with a bunch of authors who are, who've just written one or two things, or they're, you know, they have a decent indie following, but they're, they're still finding their way. Then I would say, you know, there's that old saying that you can do anything if you have, anything can be accomplished if you have uh, love, money, and time. And you can get almost anything done if you have an almost infinite amount of two of those things. So if you don't have, you know, infinite money, then time and love. So that means you need to find people, even if they're new writers, whose enthusiasm, so I'll go back to that before, if they, if their eyes light up, the bottom line is, and they, and they feel ownership, which is why, why one of the things I did was I said, what do you want to tell a story about? Now, be, you're gonna to need to be flexible because I need to fit that into this world that I'm building. Um, but if we can do that, then the bottom line is, even if we don't have a lot of money, maybe this is, we started working on this thing in 2020, the first thing, no, we started working in 2019, early. We finally came out with it. <laughs> you know the day we came out with it? We came out with it March, it was supposed to come out March 22, 2020. We were two days after COVID shut down the, the hotel where we were going to launch, Fantasize. I mean, it was like, well, thank you very much. This was very special. And yet we persevered. And because actually we had everything in the pipeline, we, we did not do one and then have another. We did the, the, the way we did it was different too. We did not do a collection. We did. Um, so here's how committed I was to making sure that people felt they owned it. Rather than doing a bunch of stories and putting out an anthology, Everybody gave me a story proposal, and the idea was write 25 to 32,000 words. The reason for that was that this, if you, that was the price point so that, I believe it was with KDP at that time, if something cost, was it more than $3, then they only get something like 28%, but if it falls under that, then it, the, it reverses, and you only get 28%. So the other reason for this, so I needed that, 
I wanted to do them individually. I, want, I knew I wanted to collect them into a braided novel. And as the showrunner, I know already how I'm gonna, I, I didn't write anything except for interstitial parts. They were important, but I knew I was gonna thread them all and weave them all together. But the thing that I was able to do with everybody doing their own novella, none of those people, with the exception I think of Casey, had ever had their name as the only name on a product that came out. And I wanted, I'm a writer, I'm not, a, I, I wanted, I know what that means and I wanted them to have that. That is really interesting. I hadn't even thought of that, but that's true because most of those guys were very accomplished like short fiction authors or collaborators and they hadn't had a solo project like yep. that. That's really cool. I was on as, as my series, yes, but like with John when I did their book, their book, and then we put them all together, massaged them into one piece, and that and that ultimately, so I, I know we're, we, you know, I'm, I'm gonna make this quick, but here's what it turned into. Uh, Tony, Tony, um, Tony uh, Weisskopf uh, actually then approached me <laughs> just this past March in 2022, and said, um, you know, yeah, we can, we can do this. As a matter of fact, why don't you bring those, we'd like to bring those in house. So now, not only are the, so we had two novels that were collected out of two different groups of novellas, and the third one was gonna come out in, again, March at Fantasy, but this time the story went the other way around. We met there and she said, yes, I wanna take these in-house. We're gonna bring the first two out as eBooks, and the third book you're about to put out, called Mission Critical, I want that to be a Bane release. But the other thing is, because I think it's important that Indies, and Tony was totally fine with this, on the data, the publication data page, the imprint is there not only for Bane, but also for CKP and for Beyond Terror Press. And it is billed as having been developed and, and published in cooperation with. This is the first time a traditional publishing house has ever used an indie press as a feeder and a now an incubator for novels that they will publish under their own imprint. So that's where we got to with all this. I, and the cool thing is, and, and, and I don't know, at least I think it's cool, is that that whole relationship between Bain and, and, and all the other presses and stuff, and, and you and, and all these other authors, it happened because you had some cool ideas for some worlds. And that, that relationship, and, and you looking at these authors and saying, you know what, I think that this person is the right person to write this thing. And they are super interested in writing this thing. And it, it's funny, right? Larry, we always talk about how there's no one way to get in. Um, it, it, it doesn't matter. You can come from, well, like like you said earlier, Chuck, the idea of coming at the story from, quote unquote, the world building or the, uh, or from the character side, or how you talk about it, you kind of almost, you kind of, it sounds like you kind of do it in a lot of cases almost simultaneously. It's all, it's like, yes, I do it from, well, yes, all of it. It's, I hope that the listeners, that you listeners out there see how varied the approaches can be and how much, uh, how much variety there is in terms of, I don't know, in, in terms of ways to meet other people Ways to gain the trust, like you talked about earlier, Chuck, I think that's key. Ways that you can earn trust from people and how that can influence the world building that you do in your novels, but also just like the relationships that you can build. Well, part of it, I think, is kind of neat to me is that we've talked on the show a lot about 
there's no one true path to success, and there's no there's no easy trick. People are always like, "What's the trick? What's the secret?" There's no. There's just many different ways to find the people who want to read your stuff, and then getting your product in front of them. And what you've done here, Chuck, is really interesting to me because it's kind of a pioneering move. You did some cool stuff. I mean, shared universes have been done before many times, but you did a very specific directed form of shared universe, and you also did a really weird hybrid of, of or actually probably the weirdest hybrid I've heard of, uh, of between indie and trade publishing. And so it's just a great example is honestly, just because somebody hasn't done it before, doesn't mean it can't be done. As a matter of fact, that's called undiscovered country, which is essentially land that has yet to be claimed. So I wanted to get there the fastest with the mostest. And apparently, at least in this small way, I did. But I, I want to say, a couple of, because I know we need to probably hit a few more, a few more points. We've got all the time you need, sure. Okay, well, the, the thing that I wanted to say is know your audience too. By which I mean, maybe you don't have an audience yet, but if you know, this is whether, if you're gonna about, if you're about to set out and create an IP that you think is gonna become a shared universe, or you're gonna open up or call whatever you like. And by the way, I will say that I learned and stole from the best, but I also learned what other people, I, I looked at it and I said, looked at other models and I said, I don't think that would work for me. I worked in one of the best and biggest shared universes that's ever existed outside of media tie-ins, which is 1632, Eric Flint. Eric Flint is an ex was an extraordinarily generous individual. Anybody could pitch anything, any would think and come in. I looked at that and I said, I can't think about spending my time on that. I can't do that. So that, but I learned things of what he did. I watched how he did it. Um, and actually, I, I brought in a lot of what I was in. I brought in other writers, and that taught me what I was going to do then for my own universe. I my first publication uh, was in uh, Jerry Purnell's War World back in 1992, I want to say. And here was another example of something that was spun spun off, and and I learned something from that that I used here, which was so I the Caneverse is set in a in a particular uh, it, it's a it's an area of space. But I, I realized that in order to do this right, I wanted to bring all the threads that were in this particular, the Murphy's Lawless series, I wanted to have them tie in back into the main story. There were a whole bunch of reasons for it, but I want to talk about profit. Mm -hmm. I say, I'm going to do a side series. And everybody goes, oh, really? You know, I'm, not, I, I'm committed to the characters I'm committed to. You're just trying to, you're just, and I told people all along, no. Stuff is going to happen in here, which is going to tie in, and it's going to happen sooner than you think. And now that Bain is doing it, they will see exactly that it did. What this means is, have I seen all the sales I could have up front? But I will be interested to come back and talk with you in maybe six months and a year and find out if, in fact, when people realize, oh, my God, he told the truth. Oh, this is part of the main series. And now you get backfill sales on that. And that would be wonderful. And and the, the but the thing I wanted to say about audience, so I learned a lot of things about audience. Let's say you don't want to write hard science fiction. Let's say you want to write space opera. Let's say you want to write space fantasy. But you you want to see who gets excited of your buyers. Even if you only have 18 sales, look at the ones who got most excited. Reach out if you can and find out. Tell me more about what excited you. Because those are the people who are going to fund you doing what you want to do. And then you start thinking about that world. And then you start thinking about what do I need in the people who are going to work with this? If you have the time to just, you know, make it open submission to anybody who's out there, you know, good luck to you. But I have to say, think long and hard before you do that. 
because the moment you do, then you then you're on the positive track of saying, okay, so now I know it's not going to be the whole pot, the whole pizza pie. What what slices am I taking off? How do I narrow this down? And strangely enough, with the after the first narrowing step, every narrowing step gets easier because now you're in the zone, and you will find a, a, what I will call your best target contributor in terms of what they like to do, where they are in their career, how much time they have, how much they love the project. Loving the project, trust and dedication. Like I said, you're, we're not in this. We're not in this because we have the money. Well, maybe Larry, but we're not in this because we have the money. And he didn't start that way. Not at least on the on the publishing side. It, right? it, it took a while. Yeah, it was time and love. First. So time and love, and that's what I'm saying. And if you find if you find the people who have the time and love to do the thing you want to do, you're you are more than halfway there. Guys, I hope that you've enjoyed. Uh, talking with Chuck and enjoyed this conversation that Larry and I have had with Chuck as much as we have. It's, uh, no, I haven't known you, Chuck, for very long. And so every time that, every time that I'm around you and every time we chat, I feel like, I don't know, I feel energized um, because you have, you have so much enthusiasm for this. And, and I love that. And, and I hope that, that the listeners can, can kind of get that. It's a little bit contagious because because that enthusiasm is, is you know, uh, the readers can feel it when they're, when they're reading your stuff. And on top of that even, they, I don't know, I, I hope what this does is it gives someone out there, some of our, some of our listeners out there, the, the extra little push that they need to, to actually go forward with their project. Now, Chuck, well, here's what I want to do. Thinking of these, of these, Perspective authors, these these uh, these folks out there, these aspiring authors out there. What is the one piece of advice that you would give these folks? So I'm going to say that there are many things that will help you, but there is one absolute prerequisite, and that is persistence. And I'm going to tie that to a personal story. So you heard in the course of this, I just not too long ago mentioned that I published, my first publications were in uh, Larry, uh, Larry Cruz, <laughs> uh, uh, Jerry Purnell's War World. Early 90s. Early right? 90s. So then the question is, what were you doing all that time? World of them? No. What happened was I was up for a novel that was going to restart War World. I was up for two pay-for-hire novels through Game Design Workshop, one related to Dark Conspiracy, another one related to Traveler. But there were changes in both of those organizations at different levels, and all of a sudden I found myself with going from three contracts to zero contracts. In the meantime, I was doing more than half time in television, and I went into them and saying, I need to cut back to no more than half time. And they said, well, you know, actually, we wanted you to come in full time, put you on salary and the whole thing. And I said, I've been waiting my whole life to do this. And they said, well, okay, great. Don't let the door hit you on the ass on the way out. And then what I had to do was, I, plan B was professor. Professor was never my first choice. And it also explains why when I taught writing or literature, I did it as a writer, because I'm a writer, damn it. The other stuff, it was very good. I learned a lot of stuff. I had a bunch of Fulbrights. I've been in places I never would have been if I hadn't taken that, that diversion. But in that course of time, from 1993, when I first got another opportunity to really write and get a contract, which was 2008, nine, 2009, actually. Um, so you're talking about 16 years. And in that time, I worked on my world. I, I published two things in analog. 
which was used to be that was a big deal. Now no one knows what analog, you know, science fiction magazine is anymore. Um, but uh, but you have to hang on. You have to believe. There's, and I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna make this. I'm gonna do something that uh, I'm gonna give you an example that I think no self-respecting academic would ever stoop. But I love the movie <laughs> Ford versus Ferrari. Have you seen it? There's a scene when Carol Shelby is having to explain why the passion for doing what they're doing. And the, the speech goes something like this. He says, you know, my daddy said to me, son, there are people who find a thing in life they love to do, and they're a blessed person because they never work a day in their life. But there are other people, and God, I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse. They find something they have to do, or it's gonna drive them plumb crazy. I'm that man. I'm Carol Shelby. I build race cars. I'm Chuck Gannon. I run novels. That's cool, Chuck. I, I don't think I have. Uh, I don't think I can top that. I don't think Larry. I don't think you can top that. No, Sorry, that bro. was that was awesome. Um, with that, everyone, that was Chuck Gannon. Persistence. Persistence. Writer Dojo is Steve Diamond and Larry Korea. Produced by Jack Wilder and Bear and Hair Studios. Theme song, Word Mercenaries by Craig Naibo. New episodes come out every Wednesday wherever you stream your content. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help support us by going to anchor.fm slash writerdojo, by leaving a five-star rating and review, and by helping to spread the word. To advertise on the Writer Dojo, email ads at writerdojo.com. All questions and comments can be emailed to questions at writerdojo.com. It's, it's the thing with squirrels. It's like shiny, shiny, shiny. <laughs> <laughs>